Hola, hello, hi, bienvenido, and welcome back, or welcome to Mentors Today. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by someone I met through the serendipity of mentorship, Andrea Orego, CEO and founder of Atelier. Atelier, yes. Andrea is an extraordinary young woman whose journey in the architecture and entrepreneurship spaces has not only created inspiring spaces for others, but also reshaped the way that we think about our entrepreneurial lives and our own resilience. Andrea is a third generation architect, was born and raised in Lima, Peru. Her passion for architecture and interior design ignited at a young age. And then in 2014, she embarked on a transformative personal journey, leaving her hometown and pursuing a new life in a faraway place called Colorado, her new home. Andrea is not only an architect, but also an advocate for sustainability, culture, equity, and inclusion. Her journey from being an intern to becoming a project leader and then rising to prominence in the US, where she has excelled in residential design at prestigious firms is a testament to not only her talent, but her drive and determination. And I'm really glad that we get to share her story now with everyone today. So Andrea, welcome. Bienvenido to Mentors Today. Rob, I'm so excited to be here with you today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Ah, it's going to be fun. You've got an incredible story that I was fortunate enough to learn and appreciate when we got to meet. And so the chance to share that with the kind of rest of the world is my honor. So let's jump right into it. I alluded to it in your, in your introduction, right? You're born in Lima, which is an amazing city. I have many good friends in Lima, but you're talking to me today from Colorado. That's right. Carbondale, Colorado, to be exact. Okay, there we go. And where is that in the state of Colorado? So if you can picture where Aspen is, we are 20 minutes north of Aspen. Okay, so mountain Colorado. Exactly. All right, we're not, we're not down in the plains in Denver or Boulder where lots of people live. So the obvious question that we're going to kick off with, right, is so how does a, a young girl from Lima, Peru, wind up in Carbondale, Colorado? It's an amazing question. <laughs> usually how most of my relationships start. So I was studying architecture and there was this work and travel program that I signed up for that would allow students to go to a ski resort in the U.S. for our summer vacation here in the U.S. It was like winter season. And to us as students, it sounded appealing because you got to go travel a new country, live in a new country. To us, it seemed like a high-paying job. Here, I didn't know it was minimum wage, <laughs> but but to us, it sounded awesome. And then you got to use that time to get paid while you lived here and then travel the country. So I ended up coming here and I worked at Beaver Creek Ski Resort for that winter and met my ex-husband who was, you know, the person that I ended up with, he tried to like live in Peru while I was studying architecture, couldn't get adapted to the culture. Once I finished school, we moved here to the U.S., to the Vail area, because that's where he was from. Then we got married. I got a job that brought me to the Aspen area. Then that relationship didn't see the light at the end, but I had already established myself professionally here. And, and that's kind of how it got started, just to give you a happy ending there. I ended up meeting my current husband also when I moved to Aspen, have a, a baby with him. We have a very happy life now. Exactly where you were supposed to be, maybe just on a more circuitous route than exactly, you expected. Exactly, yes. <laughs> so so talk, talk just more about your, you're an architect, right? So yes. one of the fun things I love about our show is we talk to people from kind of all walks of life. You're an architect, right? That's not, that's not a normal 
profession that, that mixes with the words entrepreneurship. So yeah. let's just talk about the architectural side of things. Cause I'm, I love our arch- good architecture. I'm, I was born and raised in Chicago. And so I think it's part of being from Chicago is that when you're born and raised there, you get inculcated into the whole idea that architecture matters. Yes. <laughs> right? And then you get exposed to it as you're young through like classic old architecture. Tell me about how you got into architecture. Why third generation? We talked about that. So that's part of the story, but like, you know, lots of people go do something different than their parents or their grandparents did. Yeah. I mean, I was always like art oriented. Like I really liked building things, creating things, painting, drawing, whatever you call it. I think it was very young in in my personal journey when I realized that I really liked the home process. You know, I spent hours building my Barbie house and maybe five minutes playing Barbie. <laughs> so I like realized I really enjoy that. And I was very young at that point. I didn't even know what my family did for a living. But I asked my mom, like, what do you do as a grown up if you like doing this thing? And my mom's like, well, you're an architect. I'm like, well, that's what I want to be. And then she's like, well, that's what your whole family does. I'm like, what? Okay. <laughs> and I, it hadn't even registered in my head. And maybe it was like subliminal, you know, programming because I was around it the whole time, but it was always very appealing to me. And just the process of creation in general. Like I think at one point in my life, I thought I wanted to be in film because it allowed me to create too. And then, you know, as I got older, realized like I needed to create a career um, being in Peru. Architecture seemed to be a great route for me. And then have the opportunity to go at it, you know, in my own flavor, completely different from what my family had done. I was very fortunate to be born in a family of successful architects before me. Like my grandfather on my dad's side was the first one. He started a, a, a very successful studio in the 60s. They went on to build airports around the country and like big infrastructures for the country. I was going to ask that. Your focus is residential. Yes. Your grandfather was like industrial, commercial. Yeah, well, well, a little bit of everything. I think in Peru, most architecture firms are multidisciplinary, so you do multiple types of projects. My grandfather was able to work on really, you know, big projects like, you know, the national airports throughout multiple cities in, in Peru, but also like a lot of residential projects. And the next architect was my dad's brother, who I actually got to intern with, and he got his success in commercial buildings and you know, restaurants, hospitality, all that stuff. But he also has a nice big portfolio of residential projects. And on my personal family, like my mom's an interior designer, my dad, he's a businessman, but he's owned multiple contractor firms. So he's worked in multiple types of projects as well. Builders. Yes. Everybody builders, right? At some level or another. Everybody's in building, yeah. And now I have like a totally different twist. So like I, I have flown in and out of the airport that your grandfather designed. Exactly, exactly. That just that just made every trip to Lima I've ever taken a little bit cooler. That's pretty cool. Go. That's pretty neat <laughs> to know that. And so and so as you found your path, you were, if I'm hearing it correctly, like you were kind of leaning towards like the artistic side of it. Yeah. You so you found your path in, in residential. What is it about what's the main difference for someone who's just an outside consumer of this type of stuff? Like what's the fundamental difference, if there is any, between say residential and the other types of, of architectural design? I think it's the amount of time you spent in certain parts of the project. Like when you go at a commercial project or like a big infrastructure, there's a lot of 
research permitting, a lot of technical stuff that happens beforehand. Usually the concept of the project is developed around either a contest or like multiple firms have this creative idea, then you apply for a contest and your idea gets selected by the authorities that are in charge of that. And then you go into a very technical process of, you know, developing right. the, the actual infrastructure. Residential is a lot more human. You know, the scales of the project are obviously smaller and it can go from a small apartment remodel all the way to a big, you know. Like building a spec home or something or right, or, exactly. or, apar- or apartment building or something, maybe like a small apartment building. Or would that be considered like commercial? I mean, that's that's still residential. and. What I was getting more was like a single family home, but like a 6,000 square foot. Right. Yeah. So like my house is in the Hollywood Hills here behind me. Yeah. Exactly. So, and in that process, you see a little bit of everything. And the most interesting part of me is the type of impact that you're creating on your direct client. Because either that's their main residence or their second or third home, it's going to impact them at a personal level versus, you know, a commercial project that usually has other types of functions or or purposes. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Sustainability, right? Like sustainability and design and in real estate, like it's obviously a huge topic nowadays. Uh, Frankly, sadly, it should have been a huge topic 50 years ago. It wasn't now, now it has to be right. So talk to me about a couple of different things. Like it's, it's a huge thing to you. How do you see kind of, eco-friendly or sustainable design really like becoming mainstream? I guess yeah. that's kind of the question or do, is that, is that what's going to happen? Like it's just going to be, every building's going to be a LEED certified building or every home's going to have the eco-friendly, like talk to us about that because I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very, very conscious of that going forward. So to me, it has multiple aspects. I think when we talk about construction or, you know, sustainable construction itself, it is something that needs to happen regardless of, like, it just has to happen. Construction is responsible of 40% of greenhouse emissions globally yearly. Wow. So that is a big amount of, you know, the contamination that we're putting out there in the world. And if you're talking about new construction, which happens around the globe at a really big scale, if we don't take measurements to, or like measures to make sure that we're doing it better and just like transitioning in a way that we can take that process of creating infrastructure to something that's going to help humanity long-term and not just short-term, you know, for specific living conditions or, or operation conditions or whatever you need in the immediate future. That's going to be the key of us surviving as a human species. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the reasons that I'm motivated to ask the question. So I guess, so I guess the other part of it is like, is it still today? It's still kind of a, like a premium, right? There's like a bit of a green, there's a bit of a green premium, so to speak. And we need to get past that, right? Exactly. So steel and concrete are the two major, let's say, villains in the story of it. But there is already a path. So we know that that's like a, a big thing we have to tackle. Thankfully, in the US, the AIA, which is the American Institute of Architects, is requiring all firms to go green by 2030. So that is a really big push to have to ask every single firm in the US to create sustainable projects by wow. the end of this decade. That is a shift that's going to create a domino effect, I feel like, worldwide. 
because all of a sudden every single you know material that you put into the the building is going to have to come through some type of filtering the amount of concrete and steel that are put into buildings is going to be a lot more let's say strategic so that you using what you absolutely need for the structure to be able to sustain itself but not so much that you're contaminating and if you're creating other systems to be able to I forget the term in English but balance out essentially you know like the contamination versus like what you're doing to right 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 kind of like the, the whole carbon carbon credit kind of exactly. thing like okay exactly. yeah, yeah so talk talk to me for a second we've, we've hit on materials talk to me for a second about aesthetic like in functional use so are we going to start to see more design that is like just like hey this is a more efficient way to leverage space so that you're apartment or your house doesn't get so hot and then yeah. therefore if it got so hot then you have to have more more air conditioning and then that's like is are we going to start to see that kind of the like a return to like let's design these spaces to literally have the spaces be more efficient in how they use energy or consume energy i i think so i think it's already happening i think the market tendency is going that way already more and more sustainable or green products are being marketed and thrown out there in the in the hands of the professionals that we can use yeah. for our projects. So I think the shift has already started. What's important now is that it's convenient enough and economical enough for every consumer and every project that you're doing so that it can be adopted in by the masses and not just by the elites. Right. No, that's it. Yeah, we were, I was interviewing someone the other day and we were talking about climate in particular. That's her area of focus. And she's the one that kind of planted that phrase of the, the green premium. Right. And, and the truth is that the places, the, the neighborhoods, the regions, the districts of our cities that are the most um, vulnerable to climate change are the ones that tend to not be able to afford to build or design or develop in, you know, because of that green premium. And we've got to make that. So it's nice that the rich people in the Hollywood Hills can design yeah. a cool, eco-friendly house, but we've got to have it in South L.A. Exactly. Just exactly. as equally. So. All right. So let's now merge into this entrepreneurial you. Yeah. You've created this platform, Atelier. Why? <laughs> why? And then and then you can tell us like what it is. Okay. So the why actually is multifaceted because it was sort of like my personal journey, both professionally and in my personal life. I always felt like I had this spirit of an entrepreneur. Um, in the last conversation that we had, I told you a little bit about my family history. Like on my dad's side, we spoke about my my grandfather being an, an architect, but Everybody in my dad's side of the family, regardless of the industry, they've created their own businesses, their own firms. They've they've created their own luck, essentially. On my mom's side of the family, the, the story is even a little bit more profound. Like my grandfather had been a student in Bellas Artes, which is this art university. He got a scholarship when he was very young. And then he turned that opportunity into being able to build businesses with everything that he learned to do with his hands. He started creating stages for the first couple TV studios back then. Yeah, that's cool. Then he was able to take that money, create businesses for his family so his family could have a source of income. He came from a humble background and he pretty much created wealth for his whole family just from this entrepreneurial spirit that he had. And I've always seen that as being a very important part of my my own story. Like I wanted to create my own luck. I wanted to know how far I could go if I really tried it and 
you know, like a lot of people find success climbing the corporate ladder and, and, yeah. and being able to to follow that route. But I wanted to see if I didn't have, you know, the structure of a company or your your typical career path, how far I could go and, and what I could do, what type of impact I could create, essentially. I might have had this in the DNA. You might you might not have been aware of the architectural DNA that was in you when you were a little kid, but you were acutely aware of the entrepreneurial business yes. people like exactly. DNA. Exactly. Exactly. And and that was always very important to me. I don't think I ever grew up thinking, oh, I'm going to work for this big company. I always thought like, what can I build? What can I create? What type of impact I can make? And it was really the impact aspect that drove me to do it. When Atelier started out, it was just like this really simple idea. Um, when I was working one-on-one with my clients, they were asking, can you make a 3D model of this room, of this thing that I want with this color or this product or, or this different things that that they had, you know, in mind that they had found online. And that process took tons of hours that we were billing them. And I could see in some clients, especially, you know, the ones that were more design savvy, how frustrated they were uh, that they didn't know how to use the cat programs because they're like, I know exactly what I want. I just need to put it, you know, in black and white in these documents so that I know if it's going to work out or not for me. And because I'm not the technical person, you got to do it for me and I have to pay. And that's, right. Yeah. And that's frustrating. And then, and then it's taking you a long time to do it for me too. And then that's even more frustrating. Exactly. So you, you stumbled into an obvious problem. Exactly. And, and that was it, right? Took me to this place of, I need to create a tool that anybody without any technical background can just like get into and be able to put that vision in black and white and know what that means in terms of their budget, in terms of like scale or proportion of the, of the pieces in the space. And then from that, me as a professional, I have a starting point to you know work from. And if I have to create 3D models or technical drawings that are that we need for the project, I can go from there. And there's a lot of time that we've already saved to get to this first point. Sure. And if there's somebody else that is not going to hire somebody like me because they don't have the the budget for it, and they're going to tackle the project on their own, this is exactly the tool that they need to be able to know even where to get started. So that just like sparked this fire within me. And I'm like, I have to figure this out. I had no idea what I was getting myself into at that point. Obviously, I had come from a very traditional industry. And I'm like, well, maybe I can find somebody to develop it for me. I'll have this app. I'll put it on the app store for like $3. And I'll just have a passive source of income. Obviously, I didn't know anything about tech or how <laughs> to promote a product at that point. And that was the start of, of the journey. That's awesome. Um, and, and so now fast forward to today, like, so what, 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 what is it? Who uses it? And then where's it going? So that was the initial idea. Obviously, it grew a lot from that. The more I got into it, the more I discovered about myself, about how much I really enjoy this, how big this could go. And the kind of impact it could have. Quick question. When was that for context? So the idea was probably around 2017. Okay. By the time I was able to get things moving was like end of 2018. And by things moving, I mean like half a developer that could help me create a, a prototype. Like I, I really didn't really have everything that I have no. right now. And then when we built that prototype, we realized, okay, if we're going to create this visualizer to help people 
the products that they're going to design with need to come from real sources. So like the brands that are actually going to sell these things because the whole purpose is to help them understand their budget versus the space that they have versus the vision that they got from Pinterest or House or wherever they found it online, right? In that specific, you know, part of the journey is what opened up the doors to what Atelier is today. So finding these initial vendors that we could bring their products onto the platform like it's like I pulled on a thread and we discovered this whole world of the small businesses that had no idea how to get in front of the consumers. And if they were putting all of their time, effort and money into building their products, like how were they going to market themselves and who was going to do that for them? And if it was like a two person business, how could they get in front of the consumers? And if they right. didn't, you know, if they didn't open an Amazon store or a wafer store because they didn't want to be seen as the same type of products that you get there for very cheap that are that break down within 10 months or whatever that is, yeah. then how is anybody going to find them and, and who's going to buy their stuff? So, so you pulled on that thread and uncovered, like unfurled the entire supply chain exactly. ecosystem inside of like home products and home goods and where it meets design and architecture and new building and all that stuff. So like you were like, oh, okay, wait a minute. And then, so you go from like, we're designing this visualizer tool to help people visualize their spaces to wait a minute, like we can help them actually like pick the things that are going to go and they could be the actual things, not like a generic bookshelf. Exactly. Exactly. And and then helping the, the end client was fulfilling enough on its own, but then figuring out that we can create economic impact and help tons of small businesses that just like transform it into like, oh, this is could this could be a cool little, you know, passive income thing into like this is what I need to do with my life. Okay. And and it really took me to the basis of like why I even wanted to become an architect to begin with. Cause I always enjoy the creation process, but I knew that I wanted to create some type of impact to my city, to you know, the place where I lived. And having this economic impact and even sustainability impact, and we'll get to that part, just like drove it home for me. So I'm like, okay, I have to figure out what I'm doing. I'm building a startup. This is not a side hustle anymore. I have to figure out how to do this. Who's going to help me do it? I need money for this. And then I just like got all the way up to, you know, not my knees, up to my nose with you know, <laughs> stuff I had to do and learn and, and that transform my career essentially. So we're an architect who has this interesting idea that's related to the field that you're in. Yeah. And then you're an architect like throughout it, right? You're serving clients. You're like, I mean, that's how you're making a living. And today, as we stand here today in September of 2023, are, are we still an architect and an entrepreneur? Are we, are we, or, or are we an entrepreneur who's building this for the industry? Yeah. I, I think I have taken off my architect hat off or officially. Okay. And I am a, a startup founder now. I'm actually very proud of that journey. And like I mentioned at the beginning, like the journey of the company itself has also been my personal development journey because getting into a new field, starting from zero, and this was actually the second time I had to start from zero because when I moved to the US, I had to start all over again, really meant like facing all of my inner demons, understanding what I was getting myself into starting a network from scratch, 
competing against people that, you know, had been in the industry and had all the connections, had more access to capital and always being, you know, the other person that had sort of like a cool idea, but was completely brand new and might not be a good fit for this venture firm at this moment. And that as a professional development and personal development standpoint grew me like grew everything like it grew my business it grew my my capacities it grew every aspect of myself as a person my dad used to have a phrase that he said we're all like rubber bands right once you stretch it it doesn't ever go back to its original size yes exactly that's been your journey in these last you know five six seven years Uh talk to me about not the challenges. I mean, we'll get to that in a second, right? There are obvious challenges, but I still want to pull a little bit more so we can, so everybody who's listening can clearly understand, like maybe how Atelier fits in their life, right? So, so where's where's the snapshot of it today? Kind of this is like the little pitch answer, right? And and then like where are the users? Who are the users? And then what's the next step? What's the next phase for the for its development? So fast forward to today we realized this opportunity that we had with small and medium-sized brands. Then we realized that the opportunity was even larger in Latin America, which is, you know, where I'm from, um, where I have the most connections, where we could create the most impact. And it took that initial app product into a multi-sided marketplace. So what Atelier is today is a multi-sided marketplace that allows consumers designers, product vendors, anybody in the home goods category, and even logistics to coexist in this ecosystem that that we've created so that when somebody has a project, whether that's furnishing a a home from scratch or going as big as a home remodel, there's a place to go that can guide you through the steps from beginning to end. And every single party that's going to involve in the process can be contacted and it's going to be a trusted source. It's going to be products that are vetted that you know are going to be good for you, good for environment, good for your budget, and everything coexists in one place. So essentially, multi-sided marketplace, yeah. consumers can go in there and find what they need, and professionals can go in there and find what they need. And this didn't exist or doesn't exist in Latin America. Correct. So there, there's, as you said, there's both the massive opportunity upside as well as the opportunity for impact because you're essentially bringing kind of maybe more developed thinking, creative industrial thinking around this this opportunity from here, your life here, which is, again, stimulated, affected you, helped you grow to become the person you are. You're bringing that back home. Exactly. So to speak, to be able to say like, hey, not to say that some young architect wouldn't have developed this on their own in Lima 10 years from now, but like you've thought of it now. And so now you're like, let's bring it to the market and let's enable those consumers, those vendors, those product industry people to, to accelerate their development. That's awesome. So, and and now when did we launch? Where is it at? What's, what's the next step? We had our pre-launch in October of last year in Lima. We're using Lima as our beachhead just because, you know, I'm from Lima. I had the connections. It just made sense. We developed the product from, you know, onboarding our first vendors in there and getting our first initial user base to officially launching the marketplace in July of this year. Now we have 30 brands with us. From those 30 brands, we have the largest furniture manufacturer in Peru. They're also an investor of us, so we're very happy about that connection. We also have 
every brand that we brought on board was very strategic. We wanted to make sure that they were brands with clout. So we wanted to have their history in in the fabric of the culture mixed with what we're doing so that people knew they could trust us the moment they saw us and, and the moment they saw the products that we had. And also be able to build something from the community that we were building in between all of us, right? Because each one of these brands had their own Rolodex of clients and services and and resources and bringing everybody together, that meant that we can all support each other from everybody's resources. Very relationship-driven strategy. Exactly. As opposed to like a product-centered strategy. Product is important, but you apparently have been very thoughtful about this partner and like, let's work with them. And then they have the resources to invest in us as well. Let's work with them because they may not invest, but they'll put their products here. And then that creates instant credibility. And then that like, so, so all of a sudden now you have, you know, one plus one equals seven, which is very exciting. What's it like as a Peruvian woman, former, mostly architect living in the mountains of Colorado, trying to raise capital for and build a tech company in 2023? I would lie if I said it was a piece of cake because it's not. That would be a lie, and I would have called you. I would have called you out. Yes, I, I think every founder knows how hard it is to to raise capital, just as, as a general concept. But being out an outsider or an underdog from the beginning always has its challenges. I went through some not so nice experiences, you know, at the very beginning, like just trying to get the idea funded. Obviously, nobody wanted to give me money for an idea when nobody knew who I was. I had no credibility of my own. Once I was able to create a little bit of a network and a name for myself, and I could have, you know, my own professional experience to back me in the process. And most importantly, once I learned to believe in myself that I was, you know, the right person to do this, the money started coming in. It was a slow process. It was a lot of trial and error. But then the most important thing I learned was that the fundraising process is a relationship yeah. process at the end of the day. And just like I was able to build that relationship with the you know, vendors that I have on my platform, I've been able to grow that for my own fundraising as well. So joining lots of different communities of, of founders, of tech people has gotten me closer to the people that eventually wrote me checks. A lot of the first checks that came in at first, like were completely unexpected, were me just like speaking very fondly right. of what I've been able to build and so happy about what I had done. And then happening to be an angel investor and had I had no idea about that. And they were like, hey, let me put some money into that. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> that's amazing. I'll tell you the, the encouragement, the good news is that never stops happening. I, I had a conversation with someone last week and it was it was literally just that. It was just a con- extemporaneous conversation about the topic that I was talking about and literally no intention at all. And I like when I, like you, like when I, when I'm saying this is what I'm calling you for, like, that's what I'm calling. But this was just a conversation between friends and it ended with, Hey, when you get that done, can you share that with me? Cause I'd be totally interested in being a part of that. I was like, wait, what? Exactly. Is this is how it's supposed to happen? Oh, Okay. So that's, that's awesome. And and I can imagine, again, I like the phrases that you, the two words you chose even are actually interesting. I, I'm going to steal them and reuse them more often, but underdog and outsider, right? Because we, we talk a lot about, about underrepresented founders, underserved communities, and those are valid descriptors, but there's something about the simplicity and kind of the 
every man, kind of every woman-ishness of being an underdog. Exactly. Uh, and, and being an outsider, right? It, those are things that you can't overcome through the mechanisms that you did, which is to build relationships and tell your story. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I love about you is you're, you're just very focused, right? You're a very focused person, right? And you have, you know where you're going and you know why now. And you're, as you say, you took one hat off and you're all in, but you're also like really good about reaching back and making sure that you're encouraging others to follow that same path and a little bit of a kind of, you know, show them, show them that it can be done, right? So even just today coming on the show, you're exhibiting the fact that your own resilience and your own belief is important. And so we're, we're sharing that with people, but talk about the importance of equality of access, yes, right? And, and diversity and equity in, in, in maybe both in kind of the architectural design world. And then also now in the entrepreneurial world, like how does that present itself in your day to day? In, in how you interact with people or the communities that you choose to be a part of? I think that's been like a consequence of me getting into this, like a, a consequential why. So it wasn't my initial why, but now it's like a very important part of like why I do what I do. And architecture has been traditionally a male do- dominated industry. You know, I've been able to work for multiple people. I've worked with women but even when women are leading, it's always like a masculine energy. I don't know if you if you understand what I'm saying, but it's like really sure. go, 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 like close the deal, do this, do that. Like there's a, a masculine approach to like how you do things. I think tech has a very similar aspect to that, right? In tech, you are seen as proficient if you meet certain cr- criteria and that criteria is usually, you know, male behavior or traditionally male behavior. So like overconfident, like feel like you can close the sale the second you you open your mouth, like just like do these things in a certain way. And I think that's in both careers or in both spaces, it's sort of a disservice to like all the other aspects that, you know, are traditionally more feminine that are so important and crucial to building relationships, to building long-term success for everybody to be able to build a sustainable long-term business. Because in tech, if you're not a unicorn, you want to be acquired right away and just like 5x your your money and then go to the next thing. Um, But I feel like there's this big gap between being a unicorn and being fastly acquired, which is how do you build a really big, successful sustainable company that's going to last a long time and it's going to make a lot of money for a lot of people, but it has a complete different dynamic than those two, you know, ends of the spectrum. Do you think we're perpetually stuck in the unicorn or exit methodology? Or do you think that we might be leaning not just because, oh, the stock market changed and the capital is not cheap like it was last year. But like, do you think that there, is there anything indicating that we might be entering a new era where we might kind of return the clock back to, by the way, I'm old enough to remember the era before this current era, right? Like when when the goal was to build big, sustainable businesses that made their investors lots of money, that made their executive teams lots of money, and that, and that basically had an impact in the communities that they operated in. Like, do you think we're leaning towards that? I think we're being forced to lean into that. I think this market crash and, you know, ghost recession, because it has never been officially a recession, is like forcing people to think that way. I think the fact that so many people got laid off and so many people are also like speaking up about abusive dynamics in their work environments is labor, labor strike, like labor sticking up for themselves, maybe at a a critical moment in history. 
Exactly. That is forcing people to really think about this. I want to use the term right way, but I don't know if that's the right term. Maybe better way. Yeah, better way. Exactly. Because, you know, like so many people have seen the aftermath of that previous dynamic, right? Do you think that, do you think there's also, I do, but uh, do you think there's also a little bit of a, I kind of reference the pandemic, right? And I say kind of there was a before times and there's there's forever the after times. And so, so like all those things wrapped up together have created this kind of collective consciousness that is forcing us to say, wait a minute. So, so you're trying, you're trying to build for the true, like for the new way, for the better way. I want to build for the new way. I want to forge the path actually for more people to be able to follow this. And I want to like, there are multiple things. There's like how we're building the company in like big strategic way, how we're building our teams and our dynamics and how I'm presenting myself as a option that people behind me, like I have a daughter are going to be able to see as a, another option of being able to create success in their, in their lives in, in the future. I think it's very important what you mentioned of the pandemic, because during that pandemic, we had this like mandatory break that everybody took. And we realized like, oh my gosh, I've been running at a hundred miles, miles per hour all this time. And now I don't know what to do with my life. And then we were forced to see what were the things that we were enjoying doing before that? And, and we got into that habit again. And then six months later, once we started being able to go back to work, what happened? We started burning out immediately. Everybody started burning out. And the turnaround of new employments was a lot quicker than it was before. People were jumping companies left and right because they couldn't figure out what was happening and it was that you went back to this very accelerated dynamic of how to do things, and it's not really sustainable. And then the company started realizing the same thing, and we just saw the aftermath at the beginning of this year, right? Like everybody crashing, everybody running out of money because it was just like go break things along the way. It doesn't matter, you know. It was again. It was we're inevitably exactly. cleaning up, dealing with the cleanup of the party. Exactly. So we were at a crazy unfettered party for basically like. 25 years and now there's a hell of a cleanup and nothing about the cleanup after a 25 year long party if we've ever been to a big ass party right nothing about that next day is easy or fun right now we're we're in that hangover period that's awesome like we're we're living in that but i love i love i love the intentionality it's not surprising at all again because your 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 mind your mind is like a the most recent human representation of something that my dad used to say to me all the time which was that in, in the business that I was, he was training me to be in, which was relationship development, you know, sales, business development, all that stuff. Um, he always said that it was, it was equal parts art and science, right? And what he meant by that was not hard science, right? What he meant by that was, was literally kind of the, as Malcolm Gladwell has subsequently written about, or you, you famous athletes talk about these 10,000 hour concepts, those types of things. I, I like to say that Malcolm Gladwell basically just heard my dad talk at some point in his life, right? Because my dad was telling me this stuff 35, 40 years ago. But it was this idea that, you know, we put in the work, we have the discipline, we think pragmatically around certain structures or certain systems. And then, and then that over a period of time, when done repetitively enough, that helps us release the artfulness that's within us. And that's you to me. Like that is that is you to me. Like you are, you are, and I love that you've shared it the way that you have today because you are clearly like a structure thinker, 
right? Like, so it's not just Rob, it's not just in the way that we built the marketplace. It's not just in the strategic relationships. It's not just in the, it's also in the, how we hire people. It's also in the, how we communicate what we're doing. It's also in my personal kind of way that I carry myself and what places I speak or like, and that, even just that answer <laughs> was like, was structured. Right. Yes, but, the, yes. but, the, but it wasn't like, you're not a robot. Like the true, like just listening to you and our listeners will pick this out. Right. Is, you build these, you build your answers and your ideas in, in, in themes that, that get to the artistic kind of like beautiful point. And the world needs that. Like the world, the world, it's one of the reasons I'm so, I'm such a fan of yours and what you will build with Atelier and whatever else you'll build in the remainder of your life. Because like the world, I think this new, I think we are in a new period, my humble opinion. And I think it needs more more of those people. I, I, you and I are not on the same levels. Like you're much more structured in the, in your thinking than I am, but I am a self-described pragmatic optimist. And I've, I've said that about myself for 20 some odd years. Right. And my definition of pragmatic optimism is that we're deeply aware of the conditions on the ground around us. But then when, when faced with the choice, we choose to lean into the possible. I love that. And, and so that's you and I are in the We have that shared thread, even though it presents itself a little bit differently. Exactly. So let, let's do this. Let's compartmentalize all your amazingness and your wisdom. And if we can, and, and I want to turn you into the mentor for the day. I, I would love if you can, and it can be about anything we've discussed today. It could just be about anything that you're, you've prepared, but share three pieces of advice with our audience about anything. So, this one's sort of recent because I, I, I was fortunate enough to be interviewed for a local paper, which had been a really long dream of mine when, when this was just an idea. I just wanted to be published on this local paper so that I could have some type of you know information out there for anybody to find me whenever I talk to an investor. And it came full circle you know, this year. They found me. They found out about my story. And they're like, hey, can we talk about you? And they asked me for the same thing, especially towards women from underrepresented communities. Underdogs. Yes. Uh, so the challenge for us is, is very tangible. I think when we walk into a room, we are the least expected to know what we're talking about or to have some type of accomplishment um, under our belts just because of the way we look. And that is a really big disadvantage to have. But you can also turn that in your favor because you're never going to see as many head turns as when the least expected person talks about what they've been able to do. And, and it's nothing like what everybody thought it was. And the advice is like, you are going to face every single challenge imaginable because you're forging a path that no one has done before. But it is your responsibility to go through that and it is only going to make you stronger and better for either this project or the next one. So take on the challenge. It's going to be hard. It's probably going to be one of the hardest hits to your you know, self-esteem and self-worth. But if you overcome that, there's no going back. You're going to feel invincible after that. And that's the energy that you need to bring so that the next generation can have it you know, 10 times easier than you did because you were able to forge that path for them. So it is really our responsibility to keep moving forward. And, and that's something that I want every woman that's trying to do something bigger than themselves, like, like I am. I think another piece of advice I could give 
just people in general who are building businesses or have had a business for a long time and are, you know, managing teams is this importance of the relationship aspect and the human aspect of it. There's been this notion of just like employees being nothing but labor for a really long time. And that is not going to sustain for, I don't even think the next couple of years. I think people are really fed up with just being seen as, you know, working machines or, or just like what they're checking in their their to-do list. And the more you learn to appreciate what everybody has to bring, the easier it is for you also to know if that person is going to be right for your team or not. So like you can appreciate a person for what they can do and you can also appreciate them for what they cannot do. And having that transparency and, and just being completely open with that person from the beginning will allow them to give you more than you ever expected or for them to say, you know, this is not good for me. And it's it's a much easier relationship, a lot f- less friction from that type of relationship than just, you know, seeing them as someone like, hey, you need to do what you got to do. And that's it, right? Sure. And then awesome. <laughs> I think the third one, which is be the hardest one for me to learn, which is to do things with integrity, but integrity to yourself before anything else. So don't, don't sell, don't sell yourself out in service of trying to live up to that person or that person set your own boundaries and intention. Exactly. Cause we all know what's right and what's wrong, right? We all know to be truthful to, you know, not cheat, not steal. Like that's just basics. But when you start working or operating from a place of like trying to impress someone else or to people please, or to just like be good to everybody you're not being good to yourself. And if you don't fill up your own cup, if you don't stand for yourself, then you're always going to doubt your own capabilities because you know that you're the one that betrays yourself before anybody else does. So Amen. Amen, Sister Andrea. Amen. Preach it. I love it. That's awesome. I, you know, um, kind of wrap up. I was I was thinking there were two reasons I was really excited about having this conversation with you. And it was because I was thinking of two people that would be listening. And one of the one of the people profiles of the people that I hope are listening are, you know, prospective partners and, and even prospective investors, because I just wanted them to have the opportunity to hear your story. I interviewed a VC a couple of weeks ago, friend in Miami, really bright guy, incredibly unique, unique venture capitalist, has a very particular vision about the world and himself in it. And he says he believes that podcasts are like the greatest content tool that can be useful for an entrepreneur to share with prospective investors. He's like, I'd rather hear a prospective investor that or a prospective founder that I'm thinking about investing in on a podcast in a well, in a well-structured interview and a good conversation with a capable person than to see like, you know, a 25 new PowerPoint decks. He's like, because the PowerPoint decks aren't going to tell me anything about the person and how they think and how their mind works. Right. So I wanted to, I wanted to amplify you today. That was reason number one. Reason number two is I just keep thinking, I haven't been able to shake this since we met, that there's like a 18 or 20 year old girl in university in Lima that's going to somehow listen to this or find it. And they're going to think that all the crazy dreams that they ever have had in their heads, that almost everybody around them has mooted or squelched or discouraged. Um, they're going to think that it's suddenly possible just because they're going to look at you and go like, well, she did it. Like she, she, she's in the U S she's doing what she's doing. So I'm hopeful that it finds its way into the ears of that young woman somewhere. Cause you're, uh, you're awesome. 
Oh, that that means a lot, Robin. I was trying to hold back not to cry while you were saying all that. It, it means a lot. I'm very happy that we got the chance to chat. No, it was fun. So how do we find you on social media? How can people connect with you or find the company, the website, whatever? Perfect. You can find me on Twitter, Andrea Orego altogether. That's my Twitter handle if you want to you know, chat with me directly. Also on LinkedIn. And Atelier is actually the easiest probably path to finding me. So go to atelierapp.com. That is A-T-E-L-I-E-R app, app.com. All of our social media handles are on that website. That's awesome. It's been a blast. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. As always, we thank you so much for listening. Today's show was recorded in Los Angeles and produced by Deanna Bernal in Mexico City. You can always find, like, follow, subscribe, and share our show via any popular podcasting platform, as well as find us on social media at Mentors Today. And if you'd like to connect with our host, you can find Rob at I am Rob Ryan on just about any social media platform. Gracias and thank you.